Unreal. Uncensored. Unradio. Cliffcentral.com. You're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on Cliff Central. As usual, I'll be your host for the next hour, Kingsley Kipuri. I'm joined in studio as usual by Greg Nicholson. Greg, always good to have you on. Always good to be here, Kingsley. Fantastic, man. We, we've got quite a, a fun show lined up. For this week, we sat down with writer Sisonke Msimang. She's been published really widely, including the New York Times. Thank you for coming through. Thank you for having me. And you are like a globetrotter. You're all oh, over the world. I am. I am. And I have the jet lag to prove it. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like the Santa traffic was actually worse than the The Santa traffic yeah. is worse than getting on a flight to go to Oratambo. So, yes. That should be like a, a, a how train like ad. <laughs> it's true. Like yeah, traffic right. is worse than a flight. Absolutely. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's true. Good point. <laughs> okay. So, we'll just trademark that and, and, you know, and send it to the public. Come gen for the show. Exactly. Now, Sisonke, you're you're presenting um this evening for the for the as part of the Ruth First Fellowship. How are you feeling? I'm feeling nervous. Yeah. I have to be honest. I'm feeling very nervous. <laughs> I woke up this morning and the first thing I thought of was, it's today. So I'm feeling anxious but excited, right? So the adrenaline is good. It always keeps me going until through the event. So yeah. Um. I- I, I'm excited. We're going to be there. Um, the word is that they've had more RSVPs than ever before. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. you know, we, we're excited. I think that um, part of why there's been such interest is yeah. that the topic is very topical. So the theme this year for the Ruth First um, mm. Fellows was to do a piece of research that looks at race in this country. Mm-hmm. And so, obviously... Um, and then secondly, the fact that the fellowship is based at WITS, which means, you know, you're in an academic institution, mm, mm. given roads must fall and what we've seen happening on campuses this year. Clearly, it, it feels like the right discussion at the precisely the right time. So I think that's why there's interest. I mean, I mean, you're right. It has been it has been quite a year, especially in that sort of student politics environment Absolutely. and a lot of these conversations. Absolutely. I'm curious about your your research, especially if I'm not wrong, it's around interracial friendships. That's right. Can you tell us a bit about that. So, I wanted to talk about a theme around race that is underexplored, mm-hmm. and I feel like people have views and have talked about interracial relationships. Um, sexual lines and I also felt like people have done that and it's such a fraught topic um, and I wanted to talk about an issue that everyone can relate to so if you're not in an interracial girlfriend, boyfriend uh, or partnership relationship you might see it as something that you can't relate to, it doesn't affect you personally whereas particularly, and this is a middle class conversation so mm-hmm. I want to put that as a caveat before, you know unapologetically in some ways, um, which doesn't mean it doesn't touch on class, but it's a, I wanted to talk about what's happening with middle class, young and uh, black and white South Africans and how they relate to one another in a way that everyone could relate to and then not say, oh, it's not about me. So I, I chose friendship. Um, and what I did was look at a whole bunch of theoretical stuff. So it's not cl- research in a classic journalistic sense where you interview people and you mm-hmm. go out on the streets and you, get, you know, gauge a sense of what people are, are thinking. Um, what I wanted to do was reference um, people in South Africa who are thinkers and writers who mm-hmm. have been actively thinking about these issues for a long time. And so the research is essentially a combination of a lot of people's thoughts. And then it became clear to me that because we've already 
talked about race so much in mm. South Africa. In some ways, there's nothing new to be said. And I wanted to mirror that to the audience and kind of to ourselves as a country. So we chose this. It's hard to explain, but essentially <laughs> what, what I've then decided to do is pull together the words of writers. Yeah. And I have asked Lebo to perform them. So... The words that I will speak tonight are the words that I've written, and they're very few. They just stitch together mm. the words that other people have written. And so essentially it becomes a tapestry, and it's a kind of homage to people who are my contempor contemporaries, but also an older generation of South Africans who have been thinking about interracial friendships for a very long time. So Lebo performs, and I sort of stand there and get to say a few lines here and there to stitch it all together. I'm so intrigued by I, hearing. I'm still, yeah, I can't imagine what it's gonna, actually going to be like in terms of. So it's not you and Lebo Mashila, the obviously the poet, um, together in an interaction. It's Lebo performing and you sort of giving an That's explanation. Right. That's right. Uh -huh. So everyone, and then also what I wanted to do was to recognize that. A lot of us don't read anymore. You read what you need to, mm. even when, I mean, I'm a writer, right? And yeah. I'm actively involved in having to read. So I read what I need to. I think that often makes it worse <laughs> because you read exactly what you must yeah. to, get the, to get the work done. That's, That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And so I read what I need to, but often I don't read other stuff. Um, and I think that that's the case for a lot of people. And of course, in this sort of internet, uh, you know, age, we, we get led down a particular path. You know, Google knows what you like. So it gives you more of what yeah. you like, uh -huh. <laughs> you know. And so I wanted to cite really interesting and important writers, um, and thinkers who have been around whose name you may have heard, but you've never actually engaged mm -hmm. with their stuff. Mm -hmm. And because it's a student environment, I hope that will inspire people to go look them up a little bit more. So mm. Dennis Brutus, um, Njabulon Debele, um, just a whole bunch of writers and thinkers who are out there and who are accessible. Mm. I noticed in the in the sort of brief piece you did for City Press, City Press yesterday, you also mentioned Nadine Gordimer, Aristotle. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Greg was sitting on the thing, and Greg's like, Aristotle's in here, and I'm like, Are you kidding, man? <laughs> so this is like a no nonsense, like. <laughs> but it's like, and it's very so. It's ra so in some ways. It, you could say it's random, right? Because the source material for people who have been thinking about friendship is old um, and at the same time very contemporary. So I also cite Zamandlovu, who mm. writes for Business Day. Mm. Mm. Um, I cite Sekotlane Pamodi, who is a thinker and sort of a really interesting guy who does lots of stuff on internet research. So it's a very diverse, you know, but Aristotle is important because I feel like friendship is a very important value and aspirational idea for a democracy. And I think we don't often talk enough because if you think about friendship as a proxy for trust, mm -hmm. right? So Aristotle talks about, you know, there's three types of friendship and he says there's like, um, there's um, friendships of convenience. So those are transactional, a BE deal, for example, <laughs> the friendship of convenience. You mm. may, you begin to, you know, relate to the person, but actually if you didn't have the transaction, you wouldn't be hanging out together. Mm. Then there's friendships of pleasure, so you um, uh, drink together, you get drunk. But if you remove that pleasurable activity, the friendship would not last. Mm. And then there's philia, which is the strongest, deepest form of friendship, which is like your real homies, right? The people who are your besties, who you hang out with. And those are friendships of character, of mutual uh, building. And if you think about, and he says that in, in, in friendships, there is no need for justice. And what he means by that if you think about justice as laws 
as rules. Mm. You don't need structured rules between friends because your regard for one another inspires a certain level of respect. So nobody needs to tell you how to behave towards your friend. Even where you cross boundaries, then someone will apologize. You work it out. Mm -hmm. Because there's no need for justice between friends. And if you think about philia and how little philia there is in this society across the races, no wonder we have so many laws, so much compliance. BEE requires compliance because nobody trusts Mm -hmm. that anyone's going to do the right thing across the races simply because we don't have enough philia. Between us. So I, I think it's an important principle, not just between people like us sitting in this room. On one level, that's what I'm talking about. And I think that's part of why people are interested mm-hmm. in the subject. But on another level, I'm talking about at a much bigger societal mm-hmm. level. This is incredible. This is like the direct opposite of the stop two people in the street. It's like you look like you're dating, you're different races. <laughs> How does it feel? Yeah. And it's just like, it's so weird because I'm white and they're black and it's, it's so amazing. Like, yeah, <laughs> like exactly. So, right, that's so boring, right? And that's so like, what could those two people possibly say that mm. we haven't already heard or thought about? You have your view on that. You're either for it, you're against it. You know what I mean? Boring. So I didn't want to have a boring conversation. This is, okay. I'm, can you tell us some of the conclusions that you've come to? And have you been able to come to any of these conclusions? Because one of the things, and even in your writing elsewhere, is questioning the sort of um, Rainbow Nation ideals of that um, yeah. reconciliation, reconciliation era of the mid-90s and, and posts that, that really lasted then. Yeah. In that backdrop, do you have... Have you maybe been able to make conclusions? So, you know, I never conclude anything, right? Mm. So, that part of my... Writing. It's part of my ethos of life okay. is to never conclude because I feel that the urge to tie things up neatly in a bow uh, is an urge to flatten and make simple. And then you always get disappointed because then life happens and then you're like, oh, but then I said <laughs> and then it doesn't happen. Right. So I'm a, I'm an anti concluder. So I try to leave things as ambiguous as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I'll, often I'll try to. Um, point out the complexities and the undercurrents and patterns, which is why, you know, we can cite Aristotle and Zama in the same text, right? So I don't want to conclude. However, of course, I have my own views. Mm. And, you know, the longer I write in the public, which forces you to interact with people and listen to feedback. So the longer I'm engaged in a kind of public conversation with people on race in South Africa, the more convinced I am that we need to hold two competing contradictions at the same time. So on the one hand, we need to um, continue to believe in a just and equal society in which it does not matter what you look like, whether you're in a wheelchair or not, whether you can see or not, whether you're gay or straight, whether you are black or white or Indian or colored, right? We, we, that, that, that is an important and beautiful principle. But on the other hand, that principle should not trump the lived realities of people today and seek to pretend that that is not difficult to live with those differences that it is not difficult to be poor and that being poor or black or gay does not force you to be angry sometimes and confront people sometimes right so holding those two things at the same time 
is fundamental. If you lose sight of the aspiration, mm. then you get exhausted mm -hmm. with the daily fight. And if you only have the aspiration, then you deny the truth. So for me, in terms of friendship, I feel that it's important to continue to aspire. And it's not an aspiration that I think is achievable, ever, which doesn't mean you stop fighting for it. So I think it's important for us to continue to, to aspire to have those kinds of genuine friendships and have deep philia. And, you know, Aristotle says in any society, even with people who look exactly like you, mm. philia, you will never have philia with a whole bunch of people. Philia is for a very select and small mm -hmm. group of people, which in some ways is what the freedom struggle began to achieve. That in particular circles, there were genuine interracial friendships and relationships yeah. amongst a very small circle of people, which is what Ruth first embodied. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah, possible one day when we're all dead. <laughs> okay. I'm still, every time she said Aristotle says, I still jumped a bit. I think you're just going to be the coolest person in the world now. Because at parties, she can just be like, it's funny because. Is that, is that, is that all it takes? Aristotle, Aristotle says. References. <laughs> and it doesn't matter what you oh, say next. Don't get me started on Plato. Because Plato's. no one knows what Aristotle actually said. Don't get yeah. me started on Plato and Socrates. Oh and God, then. <laughs> I just need to hang out with you all the time. I'll just be a hype man. I'll be like, don't get us started, man. <laughs> <laughs> but also, yeah. I mean, there's also a very clear political posture in using Aristotle and using Greek philosophy, which is that often people assume that younger black people are not engaged in those that kind of intellectual activity. And people assume that that's not interesting or important for us today. And people assume that it's very like academic in a boring way. Mm. And, you know, I love ideas. I love thinking. I'm so not an academic. Um, and... Yet, I think the academy is important. So in my writing, I try to like use big ideas, but try to be simpler and more accessible in the way that I write. I don't always achieve that, mm. but I try very mm -hmm. hard to not be that blah, 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 sort of, you know, gobbledygook. Mm. What the hell is she talking about? I mean, I find it interesting that you describe it that way because... I mean, often people who have been published as widely as you have, I mean, you've been writing for the Daily Maverick and the New York Times and so on, it almost becomes, there's almost a point where it starts to be, it has to be complicated to sound, to sound super important and sound <laughs> impressive. So I find it interesting that you like, you're like, no, deliberately trying to make it super simple. Yeah, I think that um, if you are overly complicated, sometimes it's because you haven't thought through the stuff enough. And so... For me, overly complicated stuff is often a mark of bad writing. And so when I read my stuff that I've written in the past, I'm like, wow, that yeah. sentence has too many big words in it. That's crazy. It's because I'm trying to work through. And, you know, we all, you know, if you write, you, you do that. Sometimes you just get to the page and the deadline is before your mind has completely crystallized everything. And so that's just part of the... So, I, you know, I also... I, I try and hold up my, myself up to a high standard, but I'm also, like, maybe too forgiving of myself. <laughs> you know, I, I know that sometimes I'm not yeah. accessible enough. But uh, does this translate, then, into some of your writing where... You know, where particularly you describe scenes? So you see... You've written a fair, fair bit about race issues, in particular about the white, um, violent masculinities. Yeah. But the way you do that is often through scenes and descriptions and almost quite playful engagements mm. of these things is that is that where that comes through because that's one of the key things i think I, I like about your writing it makes it it makes it really easy to engage with and gives you an example of what's going on and then you draw 
um, a broader argument from that from or, or, or broader inferences. And it also seems to, to translate to what you're doing at Global as well. Because I suppose you could have just gotten up there today and just yeah. said of all this stuff, but instead you're looking for a different way to communicate this. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's right. I hadn't thought about it in that way. Uh, I do... So what I try to write... Um, I try to write in a pretty way. I, I'm very much a woman writer and I know that woman writer doesn't necessarily mean pretty. So I'm a feminist. So I know about all of that stuff. But (laughs) in many ways, I am also trying to have a female subjectivity around my, my, my writing. That's important to me. And so I, yeah, I, I try to make nonfiction readable. Hmm. Um, so I'm working on a book. Ooh. And it's nonfiction. Is that a you heard it here first moment? <laughs> it's not a you heard okay, it here damn it. Okay, first first exclusive. Moment. It's not exclusive. Okay, <laughs> it's not exclusive because nobody's interested. So I've said it many times. Each time it probably it sounds like the first time. Like, yeah, whatever. Right. Good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> exactly. We're um, excited. <laughs> and and that's been very much uh, what I've been trying explicitly to do because writing columns is very different from writing a very lengthy piece Mm. and so when you're writing a long piece you have to actually think about what am i trying to do with my writing um whereas when you're writing a piece you're trying to get a point across right and this is both in a long piece of writing Mm. it's trying to do both so yeah i think you're right i do try and create a picture for people so that they can relate to the subject matter um but i also try to um be emotional in my writing because I feel like the only way you're going to connect to stuff is you know emotionally mm. so I'm really curious how did you get into writing is that something you always wanted to do or so I had a whole other life um, okay. you know I I worked for many years in the non-profit sector and then got involved so I worked for the UN um, and then um, got involved with the Open Society um, uh, and became the executive director of the Southern Africa Foundation. So it was, you know, very management mm. heavy job. It was in some ways very activist and fantastic, but also, you know, when you have a hundred staff and four offices that you're managing and, you know, millions of dollars that you're, you know, have fiduciary responsibility for, mm. it becomes a different kind of, uh, job. So I did that for a number of years. And then I went to Yale in, um, 2012 just for a semester of a fellowship and it was life-changing it was literally life-changing um amazing fantastic experience and there was no um product that they expected from you at the end so they brought together 15 of us and it's called the yale world fellows (laughs) and every every year they bring together 15 fellows from around the world all doing completely different things so in some senses we had nothing in common um, so the year that I was there, um, there was a woman called Roz Savage. She's road, um, she's a, a she's a road f- all five or six, however many oceans there are, six oceans <laughs> in a kayak. Okay. Oh. Herself <laughs> to raise awareness, <laughs> to raise awareness of climate change. So she was National Geographic like Adventure Woman of the Year for okay. like the year that we went. Mm-hmm. So of course the introductions where we had to say what we've done and why we're here were very interesting. <laughs> you want to go before Ross, her? Yeah, Ross, <laughs> Ross speaks and you're like, oh, oh yeah. So I, um, I, I, <laughs> you know, 
<laughs> so all kind of different people. How many oceans there? I know. Five, I'm like, how many Carry oceans? Are there? <laughs> wow. Yeah. So you know. So there was Ross. There was a guy you know who had been the former minister of finance in Argentina. You know, just a really eclectic, amazing group mm, of people. Mm. And we were on campus to talk about big ideas and to think about where we wanted to go next in our lives. So you don't take six months off your life and uproot yourself unless you're thinking about a transition. Mm -hmm. And so the ethos of the World Fellows Program is um, it's for people who have distinguished themselves as leaders, quote unquote, you know, we know that game. But anyway, who have distinguished themselves in some way as leaders, but whose best years are still ahead of them. And that idea was pretty interesting to me because I thought, oh, you know, I've reached a certain stage in my you know, career and I was like, you know, the executive director and blah, blah. And so there's all this sort of pretty shiny stuff about those titles and what you're doing but when i thought about the content of what i was doing some of it was interesting but actually i was like hmm if my best years are still ahead of me what does that look like and so you know leaving open society and you know my family and i decided to go live in mozambique so we did that for a little while just to be on the beach and to live a completely different very small little community and sort of set this, set me down this path of writing um, on a full-time basis. And so I came back, talked to Branko, did the Daily Maverick, and that column was amazing for me because it just gave me a platform that I never thought was possible. So Daily Maverick for me is just, yeah, it's been very important to me. Can you tell us about that process of when you first started, started sitting down and writing? What were you writing? Was it the same sort of stuff that you're doing now? And, and, and was that an ambition or did it just sort of happen naturally? It wasn't an ambition. So okay. I knew that I wanted to write more mm-hmm. and I knew that I wanted to have, and I, and I knew that I wanted to have more of a public voice. Okay. Vaguely. Maybe I didn't even know that. Let's just say I just knew that I wanted to write more. Mm-hmm. And so, the, when I think about the first columns, they were shocking. <laughs> Very <laughs> bad. No, I, I went back and read them over <laughs> the weekend. Oh good. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> <That's so> good. <laughs> but, yeah. So the process then was... So, so I started to write. I started to write for the Daily Maverick. And then what I hadn't anticipated was that that would make people get in touch with me. So then people would be like, oh, read your column. So they find you, right? So I still don't have a website because... I don't know. I just, I feel like in some ways, I don't want to do the easy things and I don't want to have a website because then come, come, you know, come and I'll speak. I don't necessarily always want to speak. So if you want to find me, you can find me somehow. That's kind of how I feel about it, right? So people would find me and then they'd be like, come, we're having this, you know, students are getting together or this is happening Mm -hmm. or whatever. So I subsidized my life by having a part time gig with an NGO. I gave sort of continued to do senior, you know, management advice and some advocacy stuff. Mm -hmm. So I had an income, but it was very part time. And then it allowed me to write and to speak and to engage with all kinds of stuff. And so it kind of, and my old life fed the new writing, right? Because I had lots of people who are social activists and they'd be like, come, we're doing this. And then I would have, I would write about it or people would say, have you thought about writing about this? And so the social justice stuff is very much part of what I know, what I've always worked on. Mm-hmm. How do you see yourself as having changed as a writer or perhaps grown as a writer? So I'm a, a lot better writer today than I was you know, when I started writing three years ago or whatever, because I think that I have learned to read other people more. So I do an enormous amount of reading, uh, way more than I did when I first started writing. And I read differently now than I did when I started writing. So I read like a writer, which means 
I'm interested in how people construct their sentences. I know it sounds very nerdy, but it's true. I'm interested in how people get their points across in different and interesting ways. And I'm also interested in deepening my writing practice and process so that I'm a more efficient and effective writer. So I'm interested both in the craft of writing mm. as well as in the message. And when I first started writing, I was just interested in the message. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm curious as to how you, you managed to st- still be on top of what's going on in the country. You said you lived in Mozambique, you lived in Australia, and I, how do you manage to always stay? So, I was really surprised to find that you, you were not always here. Yeah. So I'm here a lot. Okay, okay <laughs> so, so that, that helps. Helps. Oh, yeah. And then I'm yeah. never offline, which is okay. a problem for the family. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, but I, I, yeah. And I also try to read widely, not just about what's happening in South Africa, mm. but a bunch of places. Um, so doing the gig, uh, of sort of developing this relationship with the New York times has forced me to think about where's that going. Right. So particularly if you're a global citizen, which I think of myself as, so I'm very much a South African, but I don't feel the need to be wed to living in this particular country. And I don't feel the need to be wed to living in any particular country. Right. And so if I'm going to have the right to speak about any place, then I need to um, read about it and I need to understand it. I need to think about it and I need to know people from those places and have some experience of those places. And so I feel like that's the case for me for a few societies that South Africa is not the only place. It's the most important place for me, but it's not the only place. Yeah. I mean, do you sometimes, I mean, get anxious in that if you're writing about South Africa to, to the New York Times, you, you're writing about your home to an external audience yes. who may not know anything yes. except what they read. Yes, from your I work. think that's an enormous responsibility, yeah. especially if you're a politically savvy and aware person, which I try to be. And so I try to, and so you have, there's two instincts, right? On the one hand, you don't want to create the fuzzy rainbow nation sanitized version of South Africa mm. that has lots of political merit to a hostile Western audience. Mm. There's lots of good reasons to tell good stories because the expectation is that everything is horrible. Yeah. On the other hand, you don't want to play into existing ideas about who and what we are. So I think navigating that um, is very difficult. Um, and I don't think I've totally gotten it right. Um, and I think with an audience like with the New York Times readership, which mm. is a global audience, mm. you have to also begin to assume a certain level of sophistication and that yours is not the first piece that they're reading about this society. Um, so you're building on an assumed knowledge mm. and then you take them to a place that they haven't been before. So I think the no matter what your subject matter is, the work of a good writer is to take people to a place they haven't been before. It doesn't have to be an unf- unfamiliar they kind of feel like, oh, I, I, had, I had a sense of this place existing. But you've taken them there. You've put them in a place that they wouldn't necessarily have gone if your words didn't take them there. So that's what I try and do. You're right. You do hold yourself to a really high standard. <laughs> <laughs> and then the comment section begins and they just start insulting each other and, yeah. their, and their mothers. And I then never it's read fine. the comments. <laughs> did you, when you first started out with Daily Maverick, did you start reading the comments then? I did. Oh, you made I the mistake. The either on yeah. those things. So I did. Oh, no. I used, I, oh, I, when no. I first started, I did read the comments because oh, no. I naively thought that the comment section could be interesting, oh. that I could learn, you know, that some of the feedback could be useful yeah, for me. Yeah. For, no. Then I realized it's actually just... 
yeah, it's it's not. Once in a while, you have a few people who try, mm. but it's not worth the effort to troll through all that stuff. And I figure that some of those comments that are great, those people seek you out. They will find if someone is moved enough by what you've written, or intrigued, or even angered enough by what you've written in a critically angered, critically angry, they will find you. Then they'll be like, "I didn't," and then I've had lots of lots of engagements with people who did not like stuff that I wrote that have ended up in being really interesting email exchanges, which have continued. Mm -hmm. So I'll write something else and be like, "See, that was a bit better." (laughs) So I think that's a good point because these days. Comment section isn't the only place for feedback. It's not. You've got Twitter, Facebook. It's not that hard to find someone's totally. email address online. Totally. And totally. So that often is a good way to engage rather than trolling through the trolls. Especially because the, the those other ways of uh, engaging are not anonymous. Mm. They may That's be true. public. So Facebook is public. Mm. Twitter is public. So everyone can see what the interaction is. And that, I think, um, can lead to posturing, both on the part of the writer mm. and the asker of the question. So there's a point at which sometimes that's not so helpful, but it's still not anonymous. And so there's a sense of responsibility that both people are taking to be some, somewhat honest. But my best engagements are always off, offline. So they're, they're email exchanges or they're Facebook messenger exchanges yeah. because no one's watching. So there's no need to, mm-hmm. if you're saying it, you mean it. Um, so that, yeah. I mean, this sounds, it sounds like healthy. So this sounds like the direct opposite of what what I'd expect, which is it's often terrible, and you know, quite yeah. hateful people insulting each other yeah. or like or posturing, which you've mentioned. So yeah. it sounds like a lot yeah. of critical readers are actually seeking you out, and yeah, that's pretty cool. I was just wanted to go back to the New York Times stuff, yeah. and I know a conference that you went to, the Aspen, yes, um, event, because I think a lot of people would just be interested, in, particularly people who you know, like me, write write themselves, is yeah. how you get those opportunities. Yeah. So I've become the queen of fellowships because <laughs> part of, and this is something I think for South Africa that we don't do enough. There isn't enough public money. And by public money, mm. I mean both state money as well as philanthropic money. So there's so many high net worth individuals in South Africa who use their money for the easiest thing possible. So if you look at wealth in South Africa and how it's used in terms of philanthropy, so going back to my old life, yeah. 60% of um, resources um, spent by wealthy people in this country go to education. And yeah. of that, the vast majority of it is to primary education and is to building schools, okay. which is a state function. So it's very nice of them to do that, but it's totally unnecessary in the South Africa where the state is able to do that. So they're not thinking about how they should be using their money. And one of the ways that our society needs to use money is to build up democratic practice. And that means supporting people who think and write publicly. That means creating fellowships so that our journalists are better journalists. It means creating fellowships so that our universities have thinkers who both live in the academy but outside of it. So so many ways in which uh, other societies invest in public thought. And we just don't do that enough. So Aspen, so what I've done is just reach out to find those societies in which that mm. happens and then just hustle my way into those <laughs> programs and processes. And often because they're surprised that international people are um, applying, sometimes mm. they're like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah. Hadn't yeah. thought about <laughs> that. <laughs> so the Aspen um, Institute, um, I did a fellowship with them last year, which was called the New Voices Fellowship, and it's for people who are who have done work in development mm. and are looking for a broader platform. So you're an expert on food security, for example. 
but no one is ever going to hear your ideas other than that small group of people you talk mm. to. So the Aspen Institute helps you to find that audience. And so they facilitate an introduction to New York Times. But you still got to hustle. You know, once you once you meet them, it's not enough. <laughs> and every engagement is a new Jeez. engagement in some ways. You know, they look at the merits of that particular piece every time with new eyes. Wow. So I've learned an incredible amount through that, um, both through the Aspen Institute. So they guide you through. This is how you make a point. This is so very clear, structured writing feedback on mm. op-eds in particular, mm. as well as media training. So when you get to a radio station, how do you behave? What do you do? Um, because for a lot of, and f- by the time I was doing it, I had done some media, mm. but I hadn't, it was great to be steeped in it, to be mm. really, you have to be taught. If you're not taught, you'll never know. So this is why you're so good on air, right? Yeah, I was just, ah. like, just thinking before, it's like, <laughs> we make a small point, yeah. and so Sonke takes it, you know, takes it somewhere broader and makes a much bigger, broader point. I hope she can tell us how to behave on radio. That might be really helpful. <laughs> yeah. Can we have your notes? Just yeah. like, from that lecture. Lots of notes. There we go. <laughs> um, I'm just curious about how, you're, how you've shaped your voice. I mean, you've, you've talked about how it's grown over time as you write. I'm especially curious about you, you growing up outside of South Africa and, and having that perspective of locally and continentally and how you think that sort of all come together. So one of the places I lived was Nairobi what? as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so because we were, li- you know, my my dad was uh, uh, in exile and he was, you know, with Mkonto Basizwe. And so we grew up in the heart of the ANC, sort of ANC central was Lusaka. Um, and so lived in Lusaka until I was seven and mm. then lived in Nairobi um, f- from being seven to ten. And then we were getting to a stage where we didn't have any documents, you know, so people talk about statelessness, you know, mm. like literally <laughs> it was just we were running out of time in terms of like we needed papers. Mm. Um, and so we went to Canada. We got political asylum in Canada um, and lived there for three years, four years and then back to Nairobi. Um, and then Mandela was released and, um, I was off to university shortly thereafter, two years after that, I went to college. So I lived in the U S for four, five years doing my college degree and then a boyfriend <laughs> and then I came home <laughs> and then I came home. The list is missed. <laughs> <laughs> rolling her eyes. Rolling her eyes about this dude. Whatever you are, shame on you from all of us. Thank you very okay. much. Um, and then I came home. So that's it. That's uh, so then I've uh, been in South Africa since and then with little stints here mm. and there, right? So mm. I went to live in the States. Nine eleven, I was supposed to oh. arrive in New York City, but my grandmother passed away, so I rebooked my ticket for like two days later. Jeez. And in the meantime, nine eleven happened. And so I actually ended up being on one of the first flights back into the city. And um, you still went? I went. My mom was like, What are you doing? I was like, What's going to happen? You think they're going to do it again? Um, now, now I'm safe, right? <laughs> yeah, right. That is probably a really safe time to fly. <laughs> Security is great. Like, <laughs> um, what was I going to ask? I, I'm trying, I'm just trying to imagine what it must have been like hearing, hearing so much about a place that you had never, never been to. Yeah. It was interesting. So part of the subject of the book that I'm yeah. working on now is this whole notion of growing up, um, in exile. And it, what it does is it makes you, very aware of this whole idea of home. Home becomes really central because mm. you don't have one because everywhere you always are is temporary. Yeah. Um, so I don't have 
any strong connection to any particular place. And so when people, you know, especially coming back, right, people always want to know, where are you from? You know, you meet, ah, oh, where are you from? Mm. And I used to be able to say in exile, I was able to say South Africa. Oh, yeah. But when you're in South Africa, then people say, where are you from? They mean like the place, the exact mm. place. Mm. And then I don't have a relationship with any exact place where I can say, this is the neighborhood. This is the house. Mm. These are the friends that I grew up with. So that is a really dislocating and weird thing to live with. Um, and I think it's become kind of part of the sensibility of who I am as a person and how I connect to people and how I connect to places. So on one hand, I really miss that. I wish I had had that. Mm. And so when people, in an everyday sense, when people talk about, you know, what apartheid did and it, you know, tore apart families, a certain, certainly tore my family apart. My, you know, my dad went, left when he was 21. He came back when he was a 53 year old man. So, you know, literally, you know, seeing family who had never, they never saw him. They didn't see him grow from a 20 year old child to, you know, a man with a whole family, right? So for me, the experience of what apartheid did is felt very viscerally. I know what it did. It made me have an absence. And so that is on the one hand quite painful, but on the other hand, so little compared to what it did to so many people. Loss of life today. Ruth first was killed. This is the actual anniversary of the day on which she was, um, in which she, she was murdered. Um, so many people lost actual their lives. They lost family members. They lost so much. And what the experience of exile gave me, mm. I think on balance was so much more than what it took away. Um, and so what it gave was access to the world. So we grew up very much thinking about ourselves as the center of the world. And we grew up in an Africa, post-independence Africa, where that was perfectly possible. Wow. Right? For brown, little brown girls to think, actually, we're the center of the world. Yeah. It never occurred to me or my sisters that we were not the most important people in the world. In contrast to many young black women in South Africa, little girls who grew up thinking they were nothing. Right? So what we got compared to what we lost, I have no right to complain. That's, that's, yeah, I'm just like, I'm just, I'm, I'm actually trying to weigh it up in my mind and be, but that's incredible that you sort of see it that way. Sorry, I'm, 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 I'm curious about the, because South Africa has a very interesting relationship with the rest of the continent, right? Yes. Um, you know, we've seen it play out with the xenophobic violence that's right. this year and in the past. We also see it play out with the large banks who are in quotes moving into Africa, have been to probably, about 10 of these sessions about how do we win in Africa. Yes. And, and I wonder how that sounds to your ears when, when people talk about it as this foreign place or this place to be conquered or to be won in or this place where people come to take our jobs and our wives, I perhaps yes, assume. And, wives is a and big how issue. that, how that sounds to, I don't know why wives is always a thing I in know, this it's immigration. Such a big I don't, issue. I don't know. Mm. Yeah. So on the one hand, I think obviously we know the history of why you know, how insular this country was and why that was the case. And so on the one hand, it's perfectly understandable. Um, and as someone who grew up in Africa, mm. <laughs> um, uh, it's, you know, my initial experiences of coming home, you know, people would talk about, Oh, so, you know, so-and-so is from Africa. And I, I, I was genuinely confused. Yeah. I was like, especially because, you know, the ants in exile was so pan-Africanist, mm. right? It was a very, 
the principle and the solidarity. And when people talk about solidarity, it's like this abstract concept. Mm. It was so... I would not be here today were it not for Kenneth Kaunda. It's just that simple, right? Had it not been for Julius Nyerere giving land to the African National Congress on which to build accommodation and how it just we would not this fight this this country sitting mm. here in this Rosebank in this you know Rivonia nice office it would not be possible so for me it's a very it's a very personal thing it's part of me so when people in some ways when 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 people when the experience of xenophobia happens i feel personally affronted right because it's a part of me that people are attacking so i take it very personally on the other hand we also understand where it came from yeah. and i think that it makes it all the more unacceptable that we have a leadership that is not able to demonstrate the kind of intellectual clarity that's necessary mm. to prevent these moments not so people start jumping up and down in the moment. People are dying in the moment. It's too late. We do not need to be having you know, consecutive explosions of xenophobia in this country. There's no in-between proactive work that is a, built around creating a social fabric in this country, which is not just about it's okay to have quote-unquote foreigners here, but that is recognizing what it means for this country to be a cosmopolitan, forward-thinking country which is building a future in which africans with skills africans with labor are central to building that future so it's a very different thing from a reactive you know in some ways talking about xenophobia is because there's a consequence and we have to talk about people's human rights but we need to be much more proactive about building something very different which is an economic Mm -hmm. and social future in which this country it could be an amazing place, and it's not going to be that place if we don't recognize you can go downtown Joburg and get igusi soup. How, how can we not make that a wonderful and beautiful thing, right? Instead of rejecting it and acting like that's, that's a hindrance, it's dirty, it's something that we wish wasn't there. It needs to be there. It needs to be lifted up. So, I mean, my xenophobia thing is about the future. It's like, I don't even want the word xenophobia to be part of our, our, our vocabulary. I mean, I'm inspired just listening to you. Have you, have you considered going into politics? <laughs> People always yes. ask me that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm feeling it. I'm feeling no. like I'm tingling right now. <laughs> Greg's feeling the vibe. No. You're feeling the no. vibe. I'm not sure if I was, I was picturing you as a politician, unless you yeah. follow your parents. No, yeah. no, no, no. I'm not interested <laughs> no? one bit. I love politics. Yeah. Both my degrees are in politics. I have okay. an undergrad. I have a master's degree. Yeah. Both of them are in yeah. political science. So... In some ways, you could say I'm a political scientist, you know, without the doctorate and whatever. So I love power, talking about power. I'm interested in um, how you craft a society. I'm interested in all of that stuff. But I am like the space that I'm in, and I can't imagine the responsibility of actually having to hold that power. I think it is corrupting, and I would hate to be corrupted. I'm just thinking about the point you just made about the future, imagining a space without a xenophobia and... and sort of accepting, acknowledging, and welcoming um, diverse cultures, you know? Yeah. Um, and it seems that is, is one of your ambitions as a writer, or do you think writers and, and people in perhaps media and creative spaces need to be more forward-thinking and put across the sort of future that we want to have rather than continually following what's going on right now? Yeah. I think, again, it's, it's always that tension, right, mm. between being relevant um, 
and responsive to the current context and environment and thinking about where we need to be going, which is why I feel that public intellectual work is so important. And it's also why I've chosen not to do straight journalism, right? I'm not Mm -hmm. a journalist. Mm -hmm. I write about my opinions because I think it gives me the freedom to imagine a future while responding to a present context. Um, And I think that's a very difficult thing for journalists who are expected to cover a particular beat. And so switching into the op-eds, which I see that you do often, Mm -hmm. you know, Greg, that's really important to continue to, to be able to draw that line and say, okay, I've, I've done the Mm -hmm. super important reporting on what's happening in the now and on Marikana and all the stuff you've been writing about, but this is what I think. Mm -hmm. And I think journalists who see that, um, you know, in real time, who visit communities that other people don't visit, have a responsibility, have a real obligation to be able to take that hat off and to convey in a different format what it is that they're learning from those experiences. So imagining the future is always about what you've learned in the past, right? It's, mm-hmm. There's a kind of dialectic relationship between the future and the past. And so I think that, for me, is crucial. Um, so, yeah. I find it hard to... I've never asked any other journalists who don't have the avenue like I do, I guess, like we do, to put your opinion across and to to analyze the situation and say what you think while or after you're reporting on something. Yeah. I I don't understand how they actually just do that day in, day okay, out, yeah. just report on different issues without sort of bursting, yeah. thinking, I want to say something about this. I Well, so... Already we're talking about, in some ways, an elite caliber of journalists, right? So what the content that the Daily Maverick is putting out there is thoughtful and it's covering stories, but it's covering stories in a very different way from a journalist who's covering a beat every single day um, and providing straight facts. And so I wonder whether a journalist who's covering straight facts needs that outlet in the same way that a journalist who has to write for a thoughtful, who, has, who is imagining a thoughtful audience and has to write in a particular way. So I think the emotional burdens and the intellectual requirements of the kind of reporting that you're doing are different mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. others who will okay. remain nameless. This isn't supposed to be about me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just nodding. I'm just like, this sounds, this sounds intense. But you know what I mean? Yeah. No, totally. yeah. I totally yeah. know what you mean. But yeah. I just wonder in terms yeah. of yeah. Yeah, how they feel. Yeah, no, I am picturing just but, a burden. If on one day, I mean, you yeah. and Marikar over the weekend, Greg. Yeah. And I imagine speaking to the people and, and experiencing, you know, that moment well, of the anniversary. It feels like Marikar is almost one of those other things too, whereas yeah. now I'm not always so prone to just say something about it because it's been going on for so long. Mm. There's... And and it feels like, I don't know, it feels like certain things may not have happened or it feels like certain things have played out. And I've said quite a number of stuff mm. on Maracana. And now it almost, like with the Maracana issue, I'm sure I'll have to write about it again soon. But it almost feels like one of those things where I need to sit down and have a few weeks and, and just try to process these things. And sort of, yeah. so your piece, like, I think you took a thoughtful, different take on Maracana recently with um, imagining, asking. Yeah. Can can I and could we imagine um, white bodies and white people being gunned down in a protest? So I think sort of yeah. sometimes as a matter of kind of, we also need to look at different ways to understand these yeah. issues. Yeah, because I mean, for that piece, what I wanted to really think about was how Marikana relates to our future again, right? And so um, we all know that we never want that to happen again, but we need to think about the daily ways in which 
black people's bodies are in the firing line. And so Marikana was a very um, dramatic playing out of something we see happening on a regular basis. And so sometimes when something is so extraordinary and dramatic, it's easy to put it in its place. So with Marikana, we've put it in its place, which is it was egregious, it was horrible, but that doesn't happen every day. And so we can easily say never again. Mm. And yet if you connect it to the ways in which we see um, violence enacted on black people on a daily basis and the ways in which we see restraint when we treat white people's bodies who protest and complain and do all kinds of things all the time, then I think it becomes a different kind of question and a, a has a different kind of relevance for everyday life. And so that's the other thing. I feel like every day, you know, what's been exciting about the, you know, Rose Must Fall and all the discussions about race today are we're examining everyday racism. Um, and I think apartheid was so full of instances of egregious human rights violations. It became easy to talk about it as Sharpville, about, about those exceptional mm-hmm. days. And then we began to speak about racism as this exceptional thing that exists in other people. And I feel like, yeah, talking about how it lives in us all the de- time, every day is really important. Yeah. I, th- I actually think it's such an exciting time to be writing in South Africa yes. because these questions are now being asked. I'm not sure if they're being asked enough. I guess it depends which circles you're in. Yeah. 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 But I do find it extremely exciting. If you think about the future, sort of like we've been talking about, that it might potentially might look back one day and say these are sort of some of the moments where yeah. these issues started being interrogated a lot yeah. a lot more deeply and perhaps that could lead to further change. Totally. I mean, I think that it's just, yeah, it feels like a very healthy moment. It feels like it's a moment in which lots of people are scared and feeling unmoored, um, but that the way in which this moment is playing out is so nonviolent that that fear... And anxiety is misplaced. Um, certainly the one about institutional change is misplaced. I think there are other kinds of violence that we should be very worried about, but they're not being framed in racialized ways. Um, you've, you've, you've spoken a bit about sort of your views on, on xenophobia and how that differs to how the, our current leadership is approaching the issue. Um, and some of your writing does explore this theme of, 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 of growing up loving the ANC and loving the institution and then and, and the contrast of what you hold the institution to and what, what you see, you know, some of our current leadership sort of doing. Um, do you, do you feel like you've sort of fallen, fallen out of love with the organization over time and, and, and as you've seen it sort of grow into maturity? Yeah. I mean, this is a really interesting question because as a child of the ANC, your relationship to the party is one step removed from the people who we're taking daily actions and, you know, we're brave and courageous and all those things. And so I think, you know, I I feel like they, they love this movement so much, no matter where they are in relation to it. Now they Mm. love it deeply. And so they keep on getting disappointed in it. Those who are critical. And I have lots of, kind of, you know, off the record conversations with people who are critical of the ANC because they can talk to me because I'm openly critical about it, right? And they still care very much what people in the ANC think of them. And I don't at all. And so people say, oh, you're so fearless, you know, you write about the ANC. And 
I don't see it as fearless because I don't care what they think of me. So when you don't have an emotional investment in what people think about you, saying something is not brave. It's just saying something. Whereas when people who are within the fold of the ANC speak out critically against the ANC, that's brave. And I think I wish it would happen more, but I understand why it doesn't. So my relationship with the ANC today is one of, so I won't say it's disinvested of all emotion, It's but it's of, you know, you grow up and you look at your parents and you think, wow, I love them. But if you have messed up parents, which thank God I don't, I, I have very great relationship with yeah. my parents. But if you have messed up parents, you know, the, you, it's like, oh, wow, you're kind of crazy. And you are able to not be that anymore. And so I feel like that's what I feel like, like, like it's the crazy uncle. It's the crazy <laughs> drunken uncle where you're like, wow, you were so great when you were sober, but you're completely yeah. nuts now. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So there's no feeling of betrayal. You don't feel like you're betraying your dad or betraying I did the at first. Like, I felt yeah. bad at first, but also I'm so not the only one, right? So there's so many people writing about the ANC. Mm. And so also one of the things about growing up in exile is to not buy into this idea of being part of the privileged class. Right, I'm no, I'm not special. So my experience is unique and different. Mm, mm. But the insistence that the exiles were somehow special, that my voice is somehow, you know, different or better than other people's. Not, I'm not saying that that's what's happening here. But mm. it's there is there there at least initially was a tendency to do that. Um, and it was easy. It's easy to buy into it because we did have better access to education. So many things. Are, allow an exile's voice to be amplified. Mm. Uh, that's beginning to die down now, now, you know, with with time. But yeah, the fact that I have a relation, have a pre-existing relationship with the ANC, makes me interesting in some ways, but also not special. I insist on that, you know. Mm-hmm. Your your father um, has been recently, as far as I know, fairly like in the last couple of years. Am I right? Yeah. Critical of the current ANC leadership. Yeah. Um, and he's been one of the one of the party veterans. Who sort of stood up and said, questioned some of the things that are going on? Yeah. Was, was he speaking out before you were writing? I'm wondering, did you inspire him or something that's like that? That's funny. That could oh, be a question. You have to ask him. him. Yeah, you have, have to, to call him. Let's call him. Get him on the line. <laughs> I think he, uh, had a lot of explaining of, initially he had to explain me a lot. And I feel like part of why I can say, who cares? It's because there's a, there, ha- there was a buffer. So I think there's no, I shouldn't deny that. I shouldn't minimize that mm. role that my family and that his, in particular his history. Uh, so there was a certain level of protection at a social level. Um, but I think that, you know, his, I think that when you reach a certain age, you also have less to lose and, you think about your reputation and you think about your legacy and you want to be on the right side of history. And for many people in the ANC, um, having been initially on the right side of history and then no longer being on the right side of history must be a deeply conflicting, hard thing. And so, you know, I, I really admire my dad. I look up to him very much. He's been an important and central figure in my uh sense of personal integrity and i think he has a strong sense of integrity um so what he says in public i think very much um is in line with what he feels um 
but he still continues to see himself as a, a loyal part of the African National Congress. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely, he continues to be that. And holding that tension is part of the difficulty of life, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this just reminds me of you saying you don't conclude things because I think the ANC is also story still playing out. It's and we're, so we're much still... a story still playing out. And I hope that it can be redeemed. But I also think that's a tactical question rather than a question that is central to the future of this country. The ANC used to be central to the future of this country. I think whether the ANC can be redeemed or not is tactical now mm. rather than central. I'm sure Aristotle has a quote about this. I'm just looking at me like it reminds me of Plato. Actually, it's in my lecture. <laughs> there we go. And I think that's, you know, unfortunately, that's all the time we have. Matisonke, thank you so much for making time to thank come to talk much. to us. Thank you very much. This has been such a great conversation. There we go. Thank you for coming through. Fantastic. Right. And we look forward to the release of your upcoming book. Yeah. All right. We're gonna we're gonna do something with it. Let's let's we'll either be at the launch or we'll be let's let's be part of your of your of your team to make this book happen. Thank you. Perfect. Again, thank you so much. We look forward to the to the lecture this evening, and we'll we'll see you there. Cheers. Fantastic. Thank you. You listen to the Daily Mavic Show on Cliff Central. Thanks for tuning in. As usual, please download the podcast and share it as far and wide as possible. You know where to find us. Unreal, uncensored, unradio. Cliffcentral.com.